Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Well, good morning again, everybody. If you have a copy of the scriptures, I invite you to turn to Second Chronicles, a passage that I'm sure you frequent often as you make your way through the Older Testament. Uh, but Second Chronicles, you'll find it a little bit before the Psalms and the Bible that's in front of you. And uh, we're going to be in Second Chronicles chapter 26. In just a minute, we're going to read a scripture together. And I'm going to actually bring three different passages into our scripture reading for this morning. This will be the central passage. But for the sake of brevity, I, I won't take you to all those in your Bible. But there are there are several things I want to talk about today. We're going to look at a story uh, about a guy named Uzziah. And we're going to look at how ego plays in to our daily walk. Um, and it's really tempting as I was thinking about ego and I was thinking about pride and all these things. I, I had so many examples just by watching the news, by watching various political pundits and various governmental figures and watching sports people and looking at them being like, I've got great examples of pride and ego. And then as I went through this process of, of having more than enough material, it's almost as if the Lord said, what about you? It's probably the one thing I don't want to preach on, and yet it's probably the thing that all of us need to hear because our egos are something that gets in the way of what God wants to do in our life. Maybe I'm just speaking to myself this morning. Maybe I'm not. Um, But as we think about pride, it's really easy to say, I see it all around me. What I want you to ask this morning is, Holy Spirit, Would you reveal to me the exact things that are in my heart that you want to change and you want to transform? Because ultimately, the work of undergoing this chiseling away of our pride is a work that God does by his spirit, and it's a work that God first does on our heart, not our actions, though it does affect our actions. So, if, uh, if you would like to, I invite you to rise in spirit or in body for the uh, reading of the scriptures. And before we go to 2 Chronicles chapter 2, I want to read a couple verses from Deuteronomy chapter 17. This is Deuteronomy 17, verses 18 through 20. It's talking about the king and the king's role. When he is seated, that is the king, on his royal throne, he is to write a copy of this instruction for himself on a scroll. In the presence of the Levitical priest, it is to remain with him, and he is to read from it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to observe all the words of this instruction, and to do these statutes. Then his heart will not be exalted above his countrymen. He will not turn from this command to the right or to the left, and he and his sons will continue ruling many years over Israel." That's Deuteronomy 17. Second Chronicles chapter 26 says this. Verse 1. All the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in place of his father Amaziah. He rebuilt Elot and restored it to Judah after Amaziah the king rested with his fathers. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king and reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jecoliah from Jerusalem. He did what was right in the Lord's sight as his father Amaziah had done. 
He sought God throughout the lifetime of Zechariah, the teacher of the fear of God. During that time that he sought the Lord, God gave him success. Jump ahead with me to verse 16. But when he became strong, he grew arrogant, and it led to his own destruction. He acted unfaithfully against the Lord by going to, into the Lord's sanctuary to burn incense on the incense altar. Azariah the priest, along with 80 brave priests of the Lord, went in after him. They took their stand against King Uzziah and said, Uzziah, you have no right to offer incense to the Lord. Only the consecrated priests, the descendants of Aaron, have the right to offer incense. Leave the sanctuary, for you have acted unfaithfully. You will not receive honor from the Lord God. Uzziah, with a fire pan in his hand to offer the incense, was enraged. But when he became enraged with the priests in the presence of the priests in the Lord's temple, beside the altar of incense, a skin disease broke out on his forehead. Then Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests turned to him and saw that he was diseased on his forehead. They rushed him out of there. He himself also hurried to get out because the Lord had afflicted him. So King Uzziah was diseased to the time of his death. He lived in quarantine with a serious skin disease and was excluded from access to the Lord's temple while his son Jotham was over the king's household governing the people of the land. And finally, there's a story that is recorded in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 20 where two brothers, actually the mother of two brothers, comes to Jesus and she says, Jesus, can my son sit on your right and in your left in your kingdom. And he has a couple of words that he would like to share with them. When Jesus, or when the 10 disciples heard all this that had gone on, they became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them over and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles dominate them. And the men of high position exercise power over them. It must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve, that is, to give his life a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father and our King, I pray that the Holy Spirit would now teach us your ways that we might declare your faithfulness in what we think and what we do and what we set our hearts towards. God, that you would give us an undivided heart to fear your name. We praise you, O Lord, our God, with all of who we are. We glorify your name forever. For great is your love to us. You have delivered us. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy today. We thank you for the sufficiency of Christ in our life. We pray now, Lord, that we would learn to mean that we would learn what it means more and more to have Christ as our very source of life. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. <coughs> so, here's a crazy story when we zero back in on this guy named Uzziah. Now, if you go to 2 Kings, you'll actually find out that he has two different names. We're going to stick with Uzziah because it's in 1 Chronicles chapter 26. We're going to talk about the right kind of ego this morning. And you might be like, all right, ego, the right kind of ego? Yeah, there's a right kind of ego. But let me place you a little bit into the context in which we're writing. So what has already happened is that, you know, just kind of backing up a little bit, um, the Israelites have been in the land for some time now. They've gone through the periods of the kings under a united kingdom. So you have Saul, you have David, and then you have um, his son Solomon. 
after Solomon dies, the kingdom becomes broken and it gets divided into an upper and a lower. The upper part is called Israel. The lower part is called Judah. This is kind of an idea of what the um, territories look like around the time of this. So we have Israel up here. Um, that splits off with Jeroboam. You have Judah down here that splits off with Rehoboam. What I want you to see is that these are two divided kingdoms. And typically speaking, when you talk about the northern kingdom, um, there's no good king in the northern kingdom, right? They're all godless in how they present themselves. When you talk about the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, there's a couple of good kings, there's not, they're not all good kings, and, and good kings are kind of defined by the text, and we see this in our passage today. In fact, <clears throat> some of these kingships lasted weeks, some of them lasted months, some of them lasted years. Um, when we talk about Uzziah, Uzziah is the second longest running king by years in the history of Judah. So when you hear 52 years that he was king, that's a big deal. Because a lot of times, the, the less godly kings were judged and they were taken care of, either by the people within their own, um, in their own land, like they were th overthrown by an advisor who just wanted to overthrow them. They're like, if you read history, that happens all the time. But ultimately, they're also judged by God. So here we have the area of Judah, so the lower part of the kingdom, and this is about the size. This is, this is Jerusalem today, um, the capital city that was back then, and the capital city, uh, depending on who you talk to now, but, but certainly the heart of Jerusalem is all of what Israel is all about. So in Jerusalem, you have, um, right now you can see like the Dome of the Rock in this area, and you can see this whole thing. You've got the Western Hill and the Central Valley and the Kidron Valley. You have the Mount of Olives on the other side. When we're talking about Uzziah's reign, I just want you to see... Um, I want you to see this is about the size that Jerusalem is at that time. So if you've been there, if you've seen photos, it's much smaller, but it's still incredibly powerful, right? Uzziah reigns for 52 years. Now, part of that reign was a share raid, shared reign. It's called a co-regency. So for the first around 15 years, he was a co-regent with his father. And for the last 10 years, we read it in our text this morning, he is essentially a co-regent with his son. Um, <clears throat> that's after he has the whole leprosy moment. And we're talking about encounters with God. And what happens in our story is that it starts off great. Right? The first five verses are so full of promise. Right? The, 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 the people, they took Uzziah, who is 16 years old. Raise your hand if you're 16 here. Any 16-year-olds? Okay, we've got a couple 16-year-olds. So they're about yay high or yay high. And, and you guys are young. You have, you have the world before you, right? You, you hit almost 40 like me. You begin looking back upon your years and all this good stuff. Um, you're 16 years old. You become king of the entire southern part of Judah. You, you have a lot of control. Now imagine giving that much control to a 16-year-old. How do you handle that when you're 16, let alone when you're 60? Notice what the text says. He rebuilt a lot. He restored it to Judah. And we find out that Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king. He reigned 52 years. His mother's name was Jechaliah. Verse 4, he did what was right in the Lord's sight as his father Amaziah had done. A couple things I want you to note. Number one, I want you to know as his father had done. Right? Dads, it's, it's so, so pivotal 
that we leave a legacy of faith for our kids. We cannot control whether or not they will follow what we have done. But I think it's incredibly significant here that the text says he followed in the way of the Lord as his father had done. And as their co-regent for these first few years, he's learning what it means to be a king. In fact, it says this in verse 5. He, that is Uzziah, sought God throughout the lifetime of Zechariah, the teacher of the fear of God. So we get kind of two big drops here. The first one is his heart was set on seeking God. It, it, it was purposed that way. This wasn't a casual event. His whole life as being king started with his whole life being a servant of God and seeking God. Notice also, <coughs> there's a teacher that's going on here. He seeks during the lifetime of Zechariah, which seems to indicate that Zechariah probably had a degree of influence into his life that was important. He helped, as a teacher, he helped um, Uzziah understand the word of God, thus to be able then to live it out. Notice what it says right after this. During the time that he sought the Lord, God gave him success. Now when we talk about this, we, we, we have to think the way um, an ancient person would think. In Israel, you have three primary roles. You have the role of a king. You have the role of a priest, and that breaks out into different responsibilities given whatever area of priesthood you come from. And then you have the role of a prophet. I'm not going to pick up the role of a prophet today, but I want to focus on the role of a king because it plays into our story. What was Uzziah's role as king supposed to be all about? I read a couple verses to you in the beginning of our scripture reading from Deuteronomy 17. If you want, you can turn there this morning. I'm going to summarize a couple of things. As, <clears throat> as a king... The king, one scholar says, was to be the channel of blessing of God to the people. And what is going on with his duties as king are described by Deuteronomy 17. In fact, here's what it says in Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20. There are certain things that a king was not to do, and then there are certain things that a king should do. Things that they should not do. They should not acquire many horses, which means... It, it's not like a negative on horses, those of you who love horses. It, it's a don't acquire a strong military presence for yourself. Why? Because the king was supposed to be dependent upon God for everything they needed. They were also never to take the people back to Egypt to the place of their slavery. They were not to acquire many wives so that their heart would not go astray. They were not to acquire large amounts of silver and gold for themselves. In other words, they weren't supposed to pad their own pockets so much that they were strong and that they were comfortable and that they had everything they needed and they could just pay for it. Just charge it. It'll be all good. Here's what a king was supposed to do. Here was supposed to be the heartbeat of a king, according to God in Deuteronomy 17. First, they were to write a copy of the Torah for themselves in the presence of the Levitical priests. Just think about this. This is before you have whiteout. It's before you, <laughs> kids, you may not even know what whiteout is because everything's done digitally. It's before you could hit the backspace on your phone or on your keyboard. They were to take a pen and they were to sit in the presence of a Levitical priest and they were to write out, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and void and they keep going. They were to have a copy of the Torah for themselves. 
And they weren't supposed to have someone else copy it. There were professional copiers in the kingdoms. They were to pick up a pen and they were to do it themselves. Why? Because one of the best ways to learn what God says is to personally spend time in God's word. And one of the best ways to learn what God's word says is to begin to write it. Because it forces you to slow down and say, wait, what is that word? Why does that matter? What do I have to learn from this? I have a friend who this last year, <clears throat> as part of one of the school things that they had to do, she, she wrote a significant portion of the scripture. And, you know, sure, she got an A on her for whatever the grade was. But the amazing thing, beyond whatever grade or whatever assignment turned in, was she got to copy the very words of God. What an incredible thing. But this took painstaking um, work. Um, and if you messed up, guess what? That page started over. <laughs> like, you don't just scratch it out and start anew because there's such a high, lofted view of God's word within ancient Jewish culture. And, and what the Levitical priest would do would be to help make sure that it was done properly. <clears throat> So he was supposed to copy this for himself. Um, he was supposed to keep it with him so that he could read it every day. Why? The text says in Deuteronomy 17, so that he learns to fear God and to observe God's teachings. Right? Um, this is the path towards success. And it all begins with a heart. And I want you to notice this here because, because it, it describes it in verse 16. And we're going we're gonna to just... Glance through verses 6 and following, but I want you to notice what we're building to. Um, it says in verse 16 of 2 Chronicles 26, when he became strong, you could literally translate it here, his heart grew haughty. Right? Mine has, he, he grew arrogant, and it led to his own destruction. But literally, his heart grew high. His heart grew haughty. What is so important about the heart? Well, let's kind of back up and look at what happens in the middle of everything here. So he seeks God, and the idea of seeking God comes from the Hebrew word derash, and it means to set, um, to set yourself to seek is the way the ESV translates it, and this is the word in uh, verse 5 of chapter 26 of Second Chronicles. It means to care about, to inquire of, to consult, to seek, to study, to investigate, to examine, to ask. So you can imagine the king's efforts are going into knowing what God said and why God said it and how it applies to him today, right? Uzziah in this moment, before the next verses come, he has the right kind of ego. I love the way that in the book, Lead Like Jesus, they define ego. They define it two ways. <clears throat> the first way they define it, and this is the healthy ego, it means to exalt God only. Um, the way that the authors describe this idea of ego in Lead Like Jesus is to exalt God only as the object of my worship, as the source of my security and self-worth, and as the omniscient audience and judge of my life's decisions. That's what it means to have a healthy ego. Now look with me, please, at what happens when we get our priorities all out of kilter. This is verse 6. Uzziah went out to wage war against the Philistines. <clears throat> he tore down the wall of Gath, the wall of Javna, the wall of Ashdod. He built the cities in the vicinity of Ashdod and among the Philistines. And I want you to notice this. God helped him against the Philistines. All those other people. 
Verse 8, the Ammonites gave Uzziah tribute money and his fame spread as the far as the entrance of Egypt for God made him powerful. Notice the things that Uzziah does. He builds towers at, in Jerusalem at the corner gate, the valley gate, the corner buttresses, and he fortifies them. He had many cattle in the Judean um, foothills and plain. He built towers in the desert and dug many wells. He's a lover of the soil. He has farmers and wine dressers and vineyards and all these kind of things in all the fertile areas. Not only that, verse 11 says that Uzziah has an army equipped for combat that went out to war by division according to their assignments. There's a whole bunch of people there who were involved in that, but notice he's got 2,600 brave warriors. Under their authority was an army of 307,500 equipped for combat, powerful force. Not only that, verse 14, Uzziah provided the entire army with shields, spears, helmets, armor, bows, and sling stones. He made skillfully designed devices in Jerusalem to shoot arrows, catapult large stones for use on the towers and on the corners. So his fame spread even to distant places, right? All of these things led to people going, hey, have you heard about Uzziah? Have you heard about Judah? There's a lot of stuff going on there. Man, the vineyards are amazing. He's got incredible grain. He has really, really strong army. Everybody has their own slingshot. Like, this is a cool thing. You come down to it, and, and the text wants to remind us of something. So his fame spread even to the distant places, for he was marvelously helped until he became strong. Don't miss it. Verse 5, God gave him success. Verse 8, God made him powerful. Verse 15, he was marvelously helped. And when you look at those things, the only right response is, Bless the Lord, right? That's the only right response. Now, if you're me, you're probably going, as you go through this year after year, decade after decade of reigning 52 years, you're going, wow, did you see the kind of army that I have? Did you see my fields down in the valley? I think it's intentional that the text says, when he became strong, his heart grew haughty. What happens when we replace the seeking after God with the preoccupation of all the stuff that comes as a byproduct of wherever we're at in our life? Very quickly, friends, our heart grows high. Very, very quickly. And you don't even have to get to the point of amassing all the things that Uzziah has here. And frankly, it doesn't mean that all the things Uzziah had were necessarily bad, but it certainly indicates that he had traded dependence on God for dependence on fame, for dependence on power, for dependence on money, for dependence on notoriety. He traded places there, and he grew proud. The other way you could say it, barring the um, language again from um, the book Lead Like Jesus, he had a change of ego. I love the way that they define the other side of ego. They define it as edging God out. He went from being a person who sought God and God, God gave him success because God wants to prosper the work that God wants to do through him. But when his heart grew high, what happens? God doesn't bless the heart that is high. 
In fact, the way that the New Testament says it is that God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. That's the way, that's the way Peter says it. He edged God out. He edged him out as the object of his worship. He edged him out as the source of his security and self-worth. He edged God out as the omniscient, the all-knowing audience and judge of his life's decisions. Right? He pushed it away. Notice what happens when he pushes God out. His heart grows high. And then it says, and it led to his own destruction, verse 16. <clears throat> he acted unfaithfully against the Lord by going into the Lord's sanctuary to burn incense on the incense altar. Like, if he had been a man who had his text open, if he had pulled out the copy of God's word that he presumably wrote for himself, one of the things he would have known as he went through the book of Exodus is, it is not the king's job to burn incense. That's a rough paraphrase. That was for the priests. And notice what the priests do. You, you get a sense of the holiness of God in this encounter as the priests come out. Azariah, the priest, along with 80 brave priests of the Lord, went in after him. So they see the king, like they see the guy who is in charge go into a place where he's not supposed to go to do something he's not supposed to do. Notice he's going into worship. He's not necessarily picking up the world's worst habit or something like that, but he's picking up the heart of an idolater because he's going in to do something that God said don't do. He thinks in his pride that the king can do anything he wants, including go into the holy place of God, including to do the things that God had said that is not for the king, that is not for the people, it is for the priests. And you see that Uzziah in 80 brave priests. I think that's God's way of saying, these people, they know what it means to fear me. They go in after him. So imagine you're going in after the most powerful person in your country, and you're saying, no, don't do it. Stop. This is not for you. They took their stand, it says, <clears throat> in verse 18, against the king. And said, Uzziah, you have no right to offer incense to the Lord. Only the consecrated priests, the descendants of Aaron, have the right to offer incense. They're reminding him, not of their rule, but they're reminding them of God's teaching for them and God's teaching for the people. They said, leave the sanctuary, for you have acted unfaithfully. You will not receive honor from the Lord God. Uzziah, he, he has a fire pan in his hand. That doesn't mean like a big pan of fire. He's going to, to give an offering up to the incense altar. Notice what happens. With a fire pan in his hand to offer incense, he was enraged, right? What happens when we replace God? We edge God out. Pretty soon, we become the most important thing, and everything must bow to us. And emotionally, what happens is, how dare you would do that don't you know I am the king? Don't you know I am the boss? Don't you know I am in charge? He's enraged, but when he became enraged with the priests in the presence of the priests in the Lord's temple beside the altar of incense, notice what happens. A skin disease broke out on his forehead. Now we think of that and go, okay, did he get some sort of rash or whatever? To have a skin disease... This might be something kind of like um, leprosy, 
Leprosy is one of many skin diseases. But what would happen in this culture, according to the Torah, is that if someone had a skin disease, they had to be put outside the camp. And the reason they had to be put outside the camp is in part because you didn't want it to spread to all the other people, right? <clears throat> so he has these spots on his head. And the priests see it because one of the jobs of a priest is to inspect spots that come up to say, is that bad? Is that good? And they look at it and they say, you need to get out of here right now. This encounter with the Lord is very different than the other encounters we've uncovered because here it's in the presence of God. This is the holy place. This is, this is an important spot within the temple. This is, he, he's, in the, he's in the temple proper. He's in a place he's not supposed to be. He's doing something he's not supposed to do. The religious leaders, the, the, the priests come up and say, that's not your job, that's ours, get out. And God, as he sees the pride in Uzziah's heart, gives him leprosy. Why? Because the line was here and Uzziah crossed it. And the line was here and he crossed it. And the line was here and he crossed it and he crossed it and he crossed it. But the first time he crossed it was not the moment he stepped in to the temple. The first moment he crossed it was when his heart grew high. When he stopped seeking God and began to edge God out of being the object of his worship, the source of his security and self-worth, and the omniscient audience and judge of his decisions. <laughs> Notice what happens. They, they, they see that the skin disease comes on him. Azariah, the chief priest, this is verse 20, and all the priests turned to him and saw that he was diseased on his forehead. They rushed him out of there. He himself also hurried. So the king sees it, and it catches his attention. It took that for the king to go, whoa, this is not okay. And he leaves. So King Uzziah, having been afflicted by the Lord, was diseased to the time of his death. That's probably about 10 years, all right? It's, it's probably about 10 years because of the co-regency that he has with his son Jotham. And he lived in quarantine with a serious skin disease and was excluded from access to the Lord's temple while his son Jotham was over the king's household governing the people of the land. <clears throat> Imagine your king, your total reign is 52 years. You're in it a decade, you're in it two, you're in it three, you're in it four, and this happens. Sometimes I think it's easy to think that our walk with God becomes easier the older that we get. My friends, I, I'm, only, I'm only almost 40, right? Some of you are younger than me, some of you are older than me, you've lived life on both sides different. I would venture to guess that following God is an intentional choice every single day, in every single moment, and that we never outgrow the need for knowing God as the object of our worship, the source of our security and self-worth, and the omniscient audience and judge of my actions. Maybe you're here, maybe you're 80, maybe you're 90. Maybe you're almost 100. Your walk with God is no less intentional today than it was yesterday. And here's the amazing thing. The mercy and grace of God is no less vast and available to you today as it was yesterday. Because the moment that we think that we can somehow in our own strength be able to do everything that God says without his help, we've deceived ourselves in perhaps the biggest way. 
We, we've sought to become like gods, right? The, the text has said over and over that, that, that he sought God and God helped him. God made him strong. God made him successful. And the point isn't all the stuff he had. The point is learning to follow God every single day more closely than you did the day before. I was, I was running last night and I saw that, that bumper sticker on a, on a car that says, um, it's a bumper sticker on the back of the car that says, are you following Jesus this close? <laughs> it's kind of funny. What's your walk look like with Jesus today? Right? And let me ask it to you this way. Where's your heart? Is your heart high? Is your, or is your heart humble? One writer says this about humility. True humility can bear to see its own weakness and foolishness revealed because it never expected anything from itself and it knows that its only hope and expectation must be in God. Here's a great definition of humility. And I'm borrowing this from someone. Humility is the fruit of the knowledge that apart from God, I can do nothing. Right? It's, it's the knowledge, the fruit of the knowledge that apart from God, Jeremy does not have enough strength, Jeremy does not have enough wisdom, Jeremy does not have enough power. Without God, I can do nothing. Which is what John 15 says. In John 15, Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you, and you will bear much fruit. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. On the contrast, or contrasting, pride is an overly high opinion of oneself, leading to the belief that I can produce my own righteousness. In other words, you know, to contrast it with humility, it's thinking of yourself so high that you think that you can produce something apart from God. That's what pride is. At its most basic level. And the other thing that kicks in quickly with pride, and I love the way the book Lead Like Jesus describes this, is that <clears throat> we have kind of two options. We can either exalt God only or we can edge God out. When we exalt God only, he becomes um, the object and the source and the audience and judge of all the things in our life. When we edge God out, it, it reveals that we're living either by pride, an overly inflated view of oneself, or we're living by fear. Fear is simply an insecure view of the future that produces self-protection, right? It, it, it's a way of saying, but if I don't do this, then I won't have, or then I won't get. Our culture, our culture is very much driven by pride and by fear, very much. And I'm part of that, right? I think of myself sometimes more highly than I ought. I lose the grandeur of God in my life and I go at the other end of it where God goes, Jeremy, did you really consider your heart there? And I go, oh yeah, that's right. But our culture gives messages that say, you know, you do you. You are the source of truth for your life. And all this does is it serves to build up you. 
And friends, we don't have to build up us because we already know what God has said about us. We know that we're loved. We know that we're forgiven. We know that we're redeemed. We know that we are complete in Christ. We know that God is making us more like himself each day. But as we stand before God today, if you're a child of God, you stand before him and you can rest. Because he's not looking at your works to say, now, did you make sure that you did X, Y, and Z? Good, now I can let you into heaven. No, because salvation comes by grace. It comes by something we, we didn't earn, something we don't deserve, but something that is given to you and I as a free gift. And not only do we receive the gift of, you know, sins paid for, we receive the incredible gift of God himself coming to live with us. But we also struggle with fear, right? <clears throat> because we look at all the insecurity and all the un- instability around us. And we go, how do I protect? How do I control? How do I stockpile? And I'm not saying that it's bad to have wise decision-making principles in your life. What's bad is to replace your own wisdom with the truth of God that says, don't you know how I care for you? You're anxious about all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. And the father comes to us and he says, will you trust me? Will you lay down your protective way that you're trying to control the situation? And it's a choice for us to lay it down, right? We're not determined, our worth is not determined by whether we lay it down. But to experience the rest and the freedom and the grace that comes from God, whew, that begins at exchanging this kind of ego for the ego of exalting God alone and letting him be the most important person in your life. It begins with your heart. It begins, for example, the Proverbs, I think it's the Proverbs that say, um, above all else, guard your heart because From it come the wellspring of life. Everything flows. And I'm not just talking about a cardiac muscle. I'm talking about the very core of who you are before God. How do you know whether you're walking in humility or whether you're walking in self-reliance? There's something I like to hand out to people when I'm working with them. Um, This comes from the Life Center where I was able to do an internship a couple years ago. And I... I made it shorter. If you want the long-form version, I'd be happy to give it to you. Ask yourselves these questions. If you're considering, am I walking with humility, Lord, or or am I walking in self-reliance? Because it's the Holy Spirit who's going to need to reveal this to you in your heart. Am I willing to be rejected or hurt again? Indicator of humility. Or do I retaliate or avoid those who hurt me? That's an indicator of pride or self-reliance. I'm transparent, willing to share my weakness, or I deny, hide, or excuse my weaknesses. Humility. I have a sense of total inadequacy in self-effort. And the exchange of that is you have total adequacy in God's effort on your behalf. Or am I selfish, or I am self-assured? Do I recognize that my adequacy and sufficiency are in Christ? Do I trust my abilities, gifts, and talents? Right? Is my confidence in Christ or is my confidence in self? Another evidence of brokenness. I'm obeying God. 
the simple, small things of life, or I obey as it suits me. When it's comfortable, I'll obey. That's maybe a, a symbol that self-reliance is kicking in again. A am I willing to let others receive the credit? It's a marker of humility. Or do I demand recognition and appreciation? Some more evidences of humility or self-reliance. Do I think the best of others? <laughs> now we're meddling. Or am I critical and contemptuous of others? Do I give up the right, do, do I willingly yield the right to be right? Or am I arrogant and argumentative? A am I walking in dependence on God's guidance? Or am I walking in self-reliance and I'm confident in what I know? Oh, <laughs> that one hits home. <laughs> do I admit my faults and take responsibility? Or, evidence of pride, it's hard for me to say that I'm wrong. Forgive me. Am I willing to confess the specifics, not the generalities? Which one describes you? If you'd like to probe some more, be happily happy to give you about 15 more of those. Not as a way to beat you down, mind you but as a way for you as a follower of Jesus to reflect upon your own heart and your own life and ask the ultimate question. Holy Spirit, am I walking in pride or am I walking in your strength through humility? Jesus wanted to teach this lesson to his disciples. In Matthew chapter 20, I read part of it to you. There's two disciples whose mom comes to Jesus. <laughs> it's, and she says, Jesus, can my two sons, their names are James and John, can they have a seat beside you in your kingdom? Right? Power, prestige. And Jesus says to them, that's not mine to give. And then he says, I have a lesson I want to give to you. So he calls all the disciples over, the rest of the ten, because they're a little bit hot because these other two disciples had asked for the most important places. And he says to them, as they're indignant, he says to the ten and to the two who are maybe feeling a little bit deflated, he says, you know, that the rulers of the Gentiles, they dominate them. The men of high position exercise power over them. It must not be like that among you. And here he's calling his disciples to a new way of living. It must not be like that with you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve. That is to give his life as a ransom for many. The picture of servanthood that Jesus called them to that day. In just a little while, in John chapter 13, He's going to take a basin and he's going to take a towel. He's going to take the lowest position in the room at a Passover feast. And Peter begins to object. And Jesus says, no, no, no. I'm doing this for you. He's doing it to give them an example. But he's also doing it to remind them that there's no other, there's no other way for God to redeem humanity but then for God to become a servant and to give his life.
So Jesus washes Peter's feet. <clears throat> he gives a sermon a little bit later, and he says to them, he says to this group of people, right? Not to just individuals. He says to the group of people, he says, love one another as I have loved you, right? So when he says love one another, that's the phrase they knew, right? Leviticus 19, 18 says, love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus here is gonna qualify love in a different way. Love one another as I have loved you. How does he love? Completely, fully, he gives his life for them. He says, by this, the world will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. See, the amazing thing about love and the amazing thing about servanthood is when you're the only one in the room, it's really easy. <laughs> but when you add a whole bunch of people into a family, you add a whole bunch of people into a school, you add a whole bunch of people into a job place, or you gather like this, because he's talking to his disciples, and he says, I want you to love one another. It becomes a very different thing, because now I need to first not care about my interests. I need to care about yours. And you need to care about someone else's. And it's going to be by the love that you have for one another, the love that we have for one another, that the world will know there is something different among those people. But it all begins with having the right kind of ego that exalts God alone because you can easily serve when you know that every service you do for them, you're really doing for him. Would you pray with me, please? Our Father and our King, we are grateful that you have given us the model of service. Lord, that you have not left us on our own, that you have made redemption and forgiveness possible through your son who became a servant, who didn't use his equality with you as something to his own advantage, but he became nothing, taking on the very nature of the servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And yet, Lord, you exalted him to the highest place and you gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. Every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Lord, I thank you that you have delivered us from our old way of living and you've placed us in Christ. Lord, we, we confess this morning that many of us walk in self-reliance and we want to agree with you that apart from Christ, we are complete failures. <laughs> but that in the power and strength of Christ, God, you've given us everything we need for life and godliness. And so even this morning, God, some of us come here this morning not, not choosing not to live out of our own resources. We come admitting that, that we've tried to meet our needs through people and through possessions and through achievements. And God, we yield our lives this morning unconditionally into your hands. We give up rights and expectations. We believe, God, that we have been made new through the death and resurrection of Jesus applied to our life by faith. That we've been buried and raised again and we walk now in newness of life and so, God, we pray that Christ would be our life. 
that he would be our power, that he would be our source of identity here today. Father, reveal to each one of us the truths that, we're, that we need to walk in and the lies that we so easily believe. Help us to follow you, not to earn anything, God, but to experience the joy of being your sons and your daughters and to walk closely with you, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.